This is episode 4-5 of Free as in Freedom. Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Free as in Freedom. And uh, we basically, at this point, have two additional co-hosts. Because <laughs> we're now recording in my apartment, and uh, my dogs are going to be heard on these podcasts, and I don't think I, there's anything I can do about it. Um, they're, just, so. they're just loud breathers. Uh, yeah, and so that, that noise you hear is uh, the female dog, Weenie, uh, breathing. Uh, that's the uh, pug sound like that. I've talked about that when I first got the dogs. And then if you hear sort of a click, click, click in the background, um, Alfie is chewing on a deer antler. That's a deer antler? That's a deer antler that he's chewing huh? on. So I, I guess we can put a picture in the show notes of Alfie and his deer antler. I'm sure my wife has one. That's so, hilarious. So we can show you what it is he's chewing on. He's right under the table, but they're very well behaved. They're not going to be barking, I don't think, unless the... Uh, Someone might walk by. Well, particularly if the Boston Terrier at the end of the hall goes out for his walk. Uh, Alfie does not like him walking. Um, the funny thing is he does not bark at that terrier when he sees it in real life. But through the door, it is a threat. Maybe we should rename the outcast to Dog Fancy and Free Software. Oh, uh, in, in keeping with other <laughs> podcasts. Well, anyway, so I'm just letting people know that they're going to hear these sounds. But th- this is Boss making it pugs. possible for us to record. We're recording in my apartment, and therefore this is just going to be part of, the, part of the show. Yeah. But our topic is not my dogs, to be clear. I don't yeah. want to be that guy in the free software community and be like, oh, he's the guy with the two dogs. There's, there are people in the free software slash open source world who who are better known for things they do that aren't related to open source and free software. Like who? Um, I'm not going to say that <laughs> on the air, but there is one person that a listener has identified for us in particular that I'm thinking of, and that listener will know who I'm talking about, and I'll tell you uh, not on the air. Okay. And, uh, but the point is, is you don't want to be someone known in you're not really known in the world you're in if you're known if you're known as the person who's into something that's not in that world it's tough it's like i think people sometimes think of me as the the person with the heart condition and that's kind of weird because that's not like i talk about it because of the work but i think people think of you as the person who has proprietary software in your body uh which sort of says that you're not just the person with the heart condition you're the person with the heart condition who's fighting for the freedom of free software on medical devices. I hope so. Which is good. That's something to be known for. Because that's free software related. And you are known for that issue more than anything else. More than anything else. Just like I'm known for GPL enforcement more than anything else, you're known for the fact that you're fighting for medical devices, software freedom. And that's part of why we wanted to talk about the topic that we are going to talk about today. I don't think the transition works, but we need to get to the topic, so so we will talk about it. Um, Can I just say, I'm bored. Uh, well, I was going to propose of the board. that was one of the titles <laughs> I was going to propose. Um, the other title that I was thinking um, might work, uh, I've now forgotten. But it was something. It was another pun on board. Oh, okay. Um, so, are you bored? Oh, are you bored? Or anyway, the to- like what we're going to be talking about is about the GD or what it's like to be on a board of directors of an organization and what the obligations are um, sort of just, um, you know, I think there's a lot of confusion about what, what boards of directors do in mm-hmm. um, nonprofit organizations. And we'll probably limit it to charities to 501 C three charities since 
Yeah, maybe at the end. Maybe at the end we'll talk about T sixes. So, oh, so that's yeah, a good we, idea. we are we are actually confining this to, to pretty U.S. centric. We, we we've been criticized for being a little bit U.S. centric, but this is an issue where I think the issues are pretty complex and. I don't think either Karen or I, me not being a lawyer and Karen being a lawyer but not your lawyer, would want to opine at all um, on how boards of directors work for organizations outside the U.S. Because no, I don't know anything not. about it. Yeah. And, I, you know, there are more and more organizations in our space outside of the U.S. I think True. that's been a recent trend, which is good. I agree. We should have a global. We um, should have global but, organizations, but yeah, but we do have a lot of organizations within the United States. Correct. That so, are so very important. So for, from from here on out until we say otherwise, our, our comments are confined to boards of directors of five hundred one c three charities registered with the IRS in the United States. Right. And uh, I am not on any boards of directors. Right but now. you're going to be running for one. I am. I've already announced my candidacy um, officially. With the, the GNOME, GNOME Foundation. So, so Karen is, is Vote currently running. Vote for me running. if you're a GNOME is, member. And this gets us right to the first issue I want to talk about. So how do boards of directors come into existence? I generally find, and there's lots of ways you can structure your bylaws pretty much any way that your state or commonwealth allows. The IRS is not too strict about what you can say in your bylaws as far as governance. Um, so it's usually confined by what the state, non, state or commonwealth nonprofits say. Oh, I should start off by saying. So often... Um, to get IRS status as a 501c3 charity, you first have to be incorporated as a nonprofit in some state or commonwealth in the U.S. And they have different rules that vary from state to state or commonwealth to commonwealth. Yeah, I mean, most are pretty similar that I've encountered, mm -hmm. but there are there are real differences, and mm -hmm. uh, and you'll find like as you get more familiar with this stuff that you wind up looking up the differences between the different states all of the time. And most of the states that I'm aware of have. Um, have their code available online, so you can their their statutory code. <laughs> you, well, you put Wayne to sleep, and Alfie is very interested. He's staring at you, and she's Winnie is bored. Sleeping. She's bored, and Alfie's <laughs> interested. He's like, "What? What Commonwealth should I choose?" So it doesn't really matter uh, which Commonwealth or state you choose. Um, and yes, I know there are only three Commonwealths, but they are not states, so I always bring that up. Mm -hmm. um, a, a trivia for our, our listeners that outside the U.S., the ones in the U.S. probably know this. Which which three? Uh, uh, members of the United States are not states, but are commonwealths. I don't think that all of our U.S. listeners would know. Yeah, but um, I think it's still trivia. Um, so, so as as a slight digression, I once uh, criticized heavily a free software or a semi-free software license in, in part because it said that it was governed by the laws of the state of one of these, which was not a state at all, so it didn't exist. That was my argument. The lawyer said that it would be read. To I was just about to say that you know. But my my view was is is, is they're governed by the laws of a place that doesn't exist. Rational interpretation of that legal text. I'm right? not rational. Haha. -ha. So you guys sample that. This is why we release <laughs> under under a sharing license is so that you can take the take Well, given that the natural <laughs> constant E has various relationships to the cells in my body and that is an irrational number, I am scientifically irrational. And there are circles, so my my, my eyes have some circles in them and so forth. So pi is involved. And therefore, that's that an irrational number. That is a real reach. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, okay. So back to the So there's state law, and then there's some federal law, which is mostly like tax law, and mostly mm -hmm. what you do with an organization in order to make sure that the IRS is happy with you and that you get all the benefits of tax exemption. So when you structure a board of directors. Generally speaking, uh, there are two ways it's it's typically done. Uh, it, it could be done a lot of different ways, but it's sort of hashed out this way. Either it's a board elected by some membership with some sort of 
terms or other types of ways that the board seats are determined, or it's a what we call a self-perpetuating board, which is a board that basically appoints new members of its own or removes members on its own. And so what happens is when you form the organization, you identify one to three directors, some local jurisdictions, local, some states or commonwealths. Well, you can say local jurisdictions. <laughs> well, but local sort of implies so, that so it's, it's even more local. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but some jurisdictions uh, require one starting director, some require three. So it sort of depends where you are. Yeah. Uh, but once you set, you identify those people, then they can appoint new, um, you know, the, the full set of directors, which can have pretty much any number. Usually it's somewhere between five and nine. Yeah, that's pretty typical. Yeah. And three, that minimum of three is really common uh, across the U.S. I've never seen a state or commonwealth that has fewer than three There's as the minimum. Several have one. Oh, like Delaware or something. I believe so. Delaware is so corrupt. Anyway. Um, you know, <laughs> it's easy to appoint people as as directors that are, you know, shells. And as a, as shells, a, as shell a side that... issue, which is actually, it's somewhat related to this topic, uh, uh, Planet Money did this interesting sto- set of stories about uh, getting shell companies, and it turns out of all the places to incorporate a shell company, the least documentation of anywhere in the world required was the state of Delaware. Delaware is amazing because you can expedite an incorporation such that it takes less than four hours. That's disturbing. It's amazing. So it's no, like, it's not amazing. It's it's why companies Delaware is basically a corporate. It's a company mill. Manip- yeah, it's well, it's a, it's 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 its entire state government is kind of owned by. But the rules companies. are such that it's the it's the people who are. I mean, you can you can pretty much abuse most of the laws in most of the states or commonwealths. Well, they aren't in designed these ways for abuse. Where I think, designed. I don't abuse. think that's necessarily true. I just think that they've decided. I mean, they're just really on it. So. They have they have a lot of flexibility and they have. What, why are you laughing? You're just talking like a like a lawyer who likes to. Oh man! But when you set up be, a, when you set SEC up a corporation related issues lawyer. I did. I was. So I used to set that's, up shell that's companies that Karen sometimes. Talking and, right now. No, but for free software, it was so great to just know that I could organize a company and have it exist within a few hours. I mean, we never did with free software because it costs money to expedite and you know. You can have it in a week or two weeks. I can't remember what it is if you're not, you know, willing to pay the lowest fee. But it's, It took four weeks for Conservancy, actually, from the date you filed. Well, New York to... is a little bit different, too, because New York has a higher level of review, and they have different types of corporations that you mm-hmm. have to choose for New York law. And, um, and as I recall with Conservancy, because I think I was the lawyer who handled this, I think, and uh, I, I'm pretty sure I was on the phone with the uh, Secretary of State's office basically explaining you know, and why free software deserved to be a public benefit corporation. And what was, and I think the terminology is a little bit different. Type type B, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a while since I've looked at this stuff. But, um, but it turned out that it wasn't, they weren't questioning the principles of what we were doing. All they were doing is they were like reading like the active versus passive writing of our, you know, of the uh, mm-hmm. purposes and going from there. It was funny. So I should get slightly back on topic. So, so the boards of directors, when they're created, there's these basically two ways of doing it. It can be membership oriented where a membership elects the directors or self-perpetuating. There are lots of other options. Likely you could design. These are the two most common. Yep. And they, and GNOME is a good example of a membership based organization yes. where the members elect so, you. You right. have to run for board right. of directors. So when I first became, so when I first was doing free software law stuff, I was, um, I w- and I think that actually, when we started recording the Software Freedom Law Show, I was an avid proponent of self-perpetuating boards only, 
and I discouraged organizations from forming memberships. Mm -hmm. And now, especially having been in a non-legal role all these years, I am a huge advocate for the membership um, structure. And in fact, you reported to um, a, an elected board when you were executive director of Gnome Foundation. Yes, and at the beginning, it made me very, very nervous to think that my bosses changed over every year. Yeah. Like, that was really you, stressful. To be clear, it, it, you could set, they could, if the Gnome Foundation wanted to, it could set two-year terms or staggered yes. three-year or something like that. and in fact, it did evaluate like that. that, and yeah. the possibility for longer terms were established, but they've never been yeah. implemented. Yeah, and I think the OSI structure, just to mention another structure, I, I, don't, I don't actually know exactly, but I think they actually have some self-perpetuating seats and some because they're kind of in transition to a membership org. Mm. So they have some self-perpetuating seats inside that are going to time out and some membership elected seats. Yeah, and, and so I think forth. the terms are different too. Yeah, and they stagger the terms so that you don't end yeah, up with, a lot of with lots of turnover. do stagger, staggered terms. Because yeah. um, then you get overlap. Gnome is just every year, but in practice we do because um, you know usually three or four board members are re-elected. So, so the, the other thing to, to, to talk about is, so what, why would you, our average listener, want to know about this? Well, Particularly in self-perpetuating, I'm sorry, non-self-perpetuating boards, the membership elected boards, you might be in one of these communities. You might be involved with the OSI as a volunteer or involved in the Gnome community. You might want to run for one of these board positions. Yeah, or have a vote and might be trying to figure out who is the best person to vote for. So what we want to talk about is, is what does it mean when you're on a board of directors? What are your responsibilities? What do you have to know? What risks are you taking? Those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And so... To start out, uh, we should explain what a fiduciary duty is. I'll let Karen do that because she's probably better at that. So okay. why don't you explain that board, a member of a board of directors has a fiduciary duty to the organization. So what's that mean? Okay, so actually in the United States, there's a duty of care and a duty of loyalty. So it's basically taking... And, and that compri- that's a two-prong comprising yes. of the fiduciary duty? Yes, well, they are fiduciary duties. Um, so, uh, so, well, okay, I'm just going to be really kind of basic about it yeah start with basic yeah okay so uh so when you're a um when you're a board member or an officer of the organization well okay so boy i've just like talked around myself in a circle trying to figure out how so maybe you would have been the best person (laughs) to well so so the basic idea i'll I'll start with with super basic fiduciary duty is a, a a responsibility you have to the organization um, the, the, basically it, it binds that you have to do, do your best to, to do well by the org and you have to actually be responsible. And in some cases you're legally responsible, uh, if you yes. fail to meet the duty, so a duty which is a real care. difference than if you're just a member of an org, you usually don't have a duty to do what's right for the org, lest somebody sue you or something like that. Right. Generally when you're a member of an org, you have rights and privileges rather than obligations. Although it just sort of depends on whatever, however the membership is structured. Some memberships mean that you have obligations. In a lot of organizations, rarely it, means do have a you, duty. it means that you pay a fee um, to be a member. In organizations like GNOME, instead, you, um, you must be a contributor to GNOME in order mm. to become a member. And those are your obligations to remain a member. But once you are a member, you, know, you only have things that you're allowed to do, not things that you're forced to do or have to do. Or, or, or responsible a, or for. Responsible for. Um, so duty of care and duty of loyalty are really just as they sound. When you have a duty of care, it means that you must take the right level of care with respect to the organization. And that means you know, keeping a level of oversight over what happens with the organization, um, paying, paying attention, um, asking questions if that needs to be, and, then, um, and also uh, having regular board meetings, which in many um, jurisdictions is just once a year um, as a minimum. But if you believe that the organization needs more meetings, 
that's where sort of the duty of care comes in. You must sort of um, figure that out. And then uh, duty of loyalty means that you have a loyalty to the organization um, so, so that you can represent them and that you can advocate for the organization. And then, um, and that's sort of where, we'll maybe get into this later, but, um, but there are generally like conflicts of interest policies and things like that are put in place so that if in, you know, if you have um, duties to the organization, but you also have duties or obligations to other organizations. So for example, if you're on a member, if you're a board member of an organization, but you're also employed at a company that has an interest in the space, that could be a conflict of interest. And it sort of depends on how that comes up and what the situation is. And so before we get too uh, much into conflict of interest, let's talk. Well, to be not quite done with the okay. duty of loyalty is that in that instance where you have a conflict, you have to sort of, so, so the duty of loyalty chimes in here because it says that if you're an employee of a company and they have an interest in the um, foundation, you have a duty of loyalty to the organization. So you have to actually advocate for the organization or take a decision for the organization for itself, not in the interest of somebody else. And that's sort of fundamental in this whole duty of care and duty of loyalty, uh, uh, duty of care and duty of loyalty. Yeah, and it's interesting. This is why some for-profit companies don't allow their employees to serve on board of directors. I know of a director who had to resign position because of taking a job somewhere that they basically had a rule that you couldn't have that duty of loyalty to a nonprofit organization. Yep, and that seems like it's a very overbearing decision on behalf of that company. But on the other hand, you can kind of understand it because in free software, and I'm actually speaking about this at... Uh, uh, the Texas Linux Fest I'm keynoting there, and my topic is about sort of our duties to different organizations and how we struggle with those conflicts. Um, so we can talk about conflicts later mm. and, and all that. I didn't want to uh, derail the, the you know, moving this forward. I just want to make sure that that was clear because I feel like the duty of loyalty is confusing at times. And I think especially in free software, people don't realize that when they become a member of the board, uh, especially of a, you know, of a charity, they're not representing their company in that capacity. Yeah, in fact, they kind of can't be. They can't. Some and it's, it's funny to me because a lot of these companies have rules against that. They make an exception for Apache Software Foundation. It's the only one that's accepted, which I find very interesting, but I'll, I'll leave that. Um, so, uh, and uh, about what that means. Um, so, so I, I, think, I think that one of the questions people are going to have is, okay, so I have this duty of loyalty. I have this duty of care. What does that uh, mean as far as risk? What happens to me if I fail to meet my duty of care or duty of loyalty? Yeah, I mean, well, that really depends. Boy, I really feel like we should have gotten... Uh, so there's this... In, in New York, at least, you can get uh, continuing legal education certification for, um, you know, for podcasts as well as classes. And like, this is really hardcore legal stuff. Well, so we should. We can maybe do it retroactively. We could. Uh, we have to cut out the part of the beginning about the dogs, but um, no, we, we wouldn't necessarily. As that long just as there's start a, there. <laughs> well, it just we can't count the credits from there. Yeah, true. Um, but actually, if you're a lawyer who would appreciate getting continuing legal education credit, um, just email us so we know if yeah, people true. are listening, and that would be helpful. And that's to you. Oddcast, O G G C A S T at fife dot s. That's F A I F dot U S. Yeah. And, and so, and so, but, but so what's the risk people take? If they fail to meet their duty to loyalty, because they might not understand it, right? A lot of people on board of directors don't know these things and they didn't understand. And they, so let's start with, they make an honest mistake and they so fail to meet their So can I give you like the loyalty. lawyer answer? It depends. Yeah, well, you already did that. But no, I mean, what is, what is their real risk? I and mean, what, what, what could happen to them? Well, it really, I mean, it really varies widely. They could, could they be sued? 
Yeah, was, they yeah. could absolutely be sued. And, they, and the and the court, as they say, the corporate veil could be pierced. They could they could be sued individually for failing yes. to act. Yes, this is this be. is the case where the corporate veil is easily pierced, or is it? it could they defend I, themselves by the order? Honestly, it really depends on what the situation depends is. I mean, if a director is acting in good faith, if they're acting reasonably, then you know, then actually they meet their obligations. So you know, it's sort of their reasonable standards, and it can vary. Okay, uh, so so it, it's, so it sounds like it's pretty and, difficult and, to violate your duties. Well, and and then there are also provisions from in some jurisdictions like New York, for example, where volunteer directors are also shielded um, from liability. And there's like sort of different tests for, um, you know, for for directors that are not being paid and officers that are not being paid. Um, But uh, which is generally the case in free software. It's mostly volunteer boards. I'm unaware of any boards that actually are paid. Do you know of any? I, um, I do know that many boards of directors cover travel expenses uh, for their directors. But that's not, that reimbursement of expenses is not, is not considered compensation. Because, yeah, for example, when I go to FSF board meetings, when I go to Libra Planet, FSF's mm-hmm. actually paying for my travel, but I don't receive any money from FSF for serving on its board. Now, with Conservancy, I'm also an employee, as well as being on the board. You might have more, I mean, your the analysis for your probably, situation, yeah. right, yeah. are going to be different. Now, I'm not But you're that, not paid in your capacity as a board member. True enough, I mean, right. uh, but the fact is, is that if that were ever, if I were ever deposed over that, I'd have to admit that I spent work time doing board work, right? So it, I, I've spent, I spent hours I'm not sure that paid. that would be dispositive anyway, because if you looked at your overall hours worked and the number of hours that you put on the board, you surely put in a 40 hour week um, on average, True without enough. doing any board work, so True enough. Uh, not True too. Enough. I mean, it, it. You know, I don't know that that's necessarily the case. Yeah. So I mean, I think that I, I think that it, it, the other thing that makes me feel comfortable at Conservancy is that I feel really fine because we carry a director's and officer's insurance right. policy, that's what I which is one thing say. you definitely want to ask about if you're going to serve on a board of directors. Ask the organization. If they carry what's called DNO insurance, um, which we have a we have a you know, sort of an umbrella kind yep. of policy, and Gnome does too. But uh, right, yeah. which which that way, if you are sued, that policy covers you uh, uh, to for, some extent. To some extent, to yep. whatever the maximum of the policy, you have to read the policy to know what it covers and what it doesn't. Uh, but generally speaking, it'll cover uh, it, the and thing. I think they they is, generally don't cover like willful wrongdoing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, yeah, the things that actually the thing the reason I know this is a big part of the underwriting process is because we get tons of questions about it. Is one of the biggest things that they're concerned about covering, and they do cover, is if an employee sues the board of directors for yep. wrongful termination or or something like that. Um, that's the kind of thing that likely you would end up getting sued for, and you might be sued in your individual capacity as well because you did, you, know, you didn't didn't have to keep your duty up as far as analyzing the person's work performance or whatever it was. And so that, that's a case where the DNO policy would likely, again, read the policy, cover you. Right, right. And they're different. The policies are different from state to state. They're all governed by state laws. So, for example, Gnome, which is a California corporation, has a California policy and uh, Conservancy, which is in New York. New York. Exactly. Yeah. So that's kind of And Delaware too. offers no insurance. With no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But <laughs> no, I mean, there's definitely Delaware, Delaware policies, policies, and I think they're a little cheaper. Well, it's they're not probably cheaper. They're probably cheaper. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true because there's no no oversight. There's really nothing wrong with incorporating in Delaware. There are a lot of advantages to the flexibility. I see. That's I see incorporating in Delaware or I can't remember. If it's North or South Dakota, which is similar to Delaware. I think it's probably North Dakota. Um, the, the, I see incorporations there and I assume they're up to no good. But it's interesting where there are safe havens. There are different safe havens in different jurisdictions for different things. I forget there's one um, state in particular that on copyright has like kind of a 
more of a safe haven. I, I forget, but I was reading a bunch of well, like copyright in the U.S. Copyright law is all federal, so. Well, no, they're still also um, there. It's preempted federally, but not in every particular situation. So there's some common law copyright. Oh, I see what you which mean. Which has been eliminated in um, in some places, but not others. Mm-hmm. So I mean, yeah. some of the like long, and I haven't looked at this in a while, but some of the long extensions, especially of the sound recording copyrights, all came from common law copyright. Hmm. So, um, so I, I think I think that that's that covers some of the some of the basics. Are there, are there any uh, special issues that I think people should think about? When- well, so why don't we talk about our own personal like sort of you know I've avoided spending time on boards. Like I've mm-hmm. I've been invited to be on at least ten board of directors boards of directors mm-hmm. and have uh, and have turned them all down. So mm-hmm. GNOME is actually the very first organization that I have sought um, actual membership to. And, uh, and it's, it's interesting. So I, I personally don't like to serve on boards, but you've served on a few boards. Yeah, I mean, the first board of directors that I served on was the Cincinnati GNU Linux Users Group, uh, which was so incorporated because I insist upon it. They, I compromised on getting a DBA to Cincinnati Linux Users Group, um, but I insisted that it incorporate as Cincinnati GNU Linux Users Group. Um, and I served, I was a membership elected board. And in fact, the, the funny thing about that is whoever showed up at the election meeting, even if it was your first meeting, you got to vote. It was kind of funny. Um, I actually kind of got myself elected by bringing a lot of friends that day, uh, quite frankly, um, because it was anybody who showed up at a meeting. That meeting where the vote was, even if they'd never been to a meeting before, could vote. Um, so, so I served on that board. Um, and actually, the biggest issue that board was dealing with was a, a C3 application that was getting denied. This was back in the 90s. Mm. And, and they were, um, they were, they were actually, like they were cracking down on open source more generally later, they were cracking down on user groups in those days um, because they were like, user groups are just promoting some corporate thing. We were arguing back that it's not, a, GNU Linux isn't a corporate thing. Um, and then they abandoned the C3 app mainly because there was no real benefit to it because no one was donating any money. Right. to the org anyway so I, I think it's I think the org takes in $150 to $200 a year uh, these days so it was not, not really necessary for you to get, to get C3 anyway um, so I started on that board and that, that was a relatively contentious thing but mostly because of, of free software politics um, and I tried to fight for policies about what whether people were allowed to present proprietary software at the meetings that sort of thing um, but that's an interesting thing is that, is that that really didn't have anything to do with the duties per se I mean I was fighting for positions that I believed in in my role as a director but the, that, that didn't really relate to the duty. In fact, I didn't really understand um, the duty issue uh, when I was uh, when I was on that board. When did you understand it? Um, I didn't understand it until basically I met you. I think I think you're probably the first person that explained to me what what it was to have a duty. And I, I think that generally speaking, the more you know about these issues, the less, as you say, less likely you are to serve on boards. Yeah. I, I've served with many directors who, who I, I think that they, they're not that worried, right? Like they're, they're, they're not worried about serving on a board because they, because they don't know all this level of detail of what could go wrong. And because frankly, most doesn't go, most does not go wrong. And, right. and generally they're meeting and their duties anyway. And even if things anyway. do go wrong, right, they're meeting their duties. I think what she... most people are on board of directors, boards of directors, because I can't getting that plural wrong, yeah. on boards because they care about the organization. And so yeah. that means that they make good decisions. Yeah, in- indeed. And the thing that's changed my behavior most, the more I've learned about this, is now serving on boards, I feel... A tremendous amount of responsibility to to know a lot about the 990 and re- make sure read yeah. the 990 in detail and see what it says. Are you just on three boards? I want two boards, just two. Two right now, FSF oh. and Conservancy. Oh, okay. Um, I've never been on another board um, other than the, thought, the GNU Linux uh, user group in Cincinnati. Is Upstream University not? 
Upstream University is not incorporated ah, still. Okay. So so yeah, I'm on an advisory board for that, as are you, Karen, actually. But that never yeah. I actually volunteered. Well there was an advisory that, board because I asked that there be one right, rather well, but, than have a board just a board of directors. Well and, and, and there was plans to to incorporate and appoint a board of directors, but in fact right. it never got incorporated. Okay. So it's not actually a corporate. Oh form, I didn't realize. I think. Yeah, I think FSF France was helping basically handle its bookkeeping. Um, and it never sort of got spun off because it's his actor director left and so forth. So um, I would gr- I actually agreed to be on Upstream University's board when it gets incorporated, but it actually never happened. So I'm gotcha. not on the board. Um, and and so um, so yeah, I've only been on those three boards. I've been asked. I used to get asked more when I was at said I don't think I've, I've only been asked once at Conservancy, um, which I declined. Uh, I, I, I a lot of times I offer myself in an advisory role. That way you don't really have any. Obligations. This is what I do. I mean, I'm often asked to be on the boards of directors i think it's it's because people are making a real effort now to invite more women mm-hmm. um and the pool of women who are you know sort of established in our field or is is somewhat limited still mm-hmm. and so i've become an obvious choice so a lot of people ask me um less so since i have been so adamant about not wanting to serve on boards uh, mm-hmm. but maybe once i become uh, if I'm elected to GNOME, maybe that'll change. But if you're asked to serve on a 501c3 board, I think the first things you want to ask is, is you want to see their conflicts of interest policy. You want to see their whistleblowers policy. Well, hang on. Yeah, Actually, I think the first thing that you want to ask is, do I want to be a director? Which is a totally oh, different thing. And I think most people feel flattered to get the title and it makes them feel important. And I used to feel this way too. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, for me, I just, when I'm asked to be on a board of directors, I sort of think about what is the organization? Why do I care about it? What would I like to see it do? And then I think about would me serving as a director be forwarding those goals and does it make sense to do it that way? Because for me, a lot of times people are asking me because, because I'm a lawyer mm-hmm. um, or um, because of my, um, you know, my experience in running organizations or because of my um, software freedom you know, bent. And I sometimes, I often find that being an advisor or just volunteering to do whatever it is that needs to be done is more helpful for the organization than signing up to be a director. Because when you are a director, you have all these duties of care and duties of loyalty, and you have to review all the documents and things like that and pay attention, especially if you're a lawyer, then you can't argue you didn't know. (laughs) You're kind of on the hook. And so it's, it's a lot of work and it might actually take time away from doing this and the meetings might actually take time away from the volunteer work that you were hoping to do for the organization. So I think we would all be better off if we all kind of took a step back and said, like, is being a director something I actually want to do? Because some organizations meet frequently and some meet less frequently. Gnome meets every other week. That's a big commitment of time, you know? And, and you know, would you, you know, would that take away from, is that all the time you have? And did you really actually just want to organize a bunch of hack fests? I, I agree with that. Uh, so Karen made the case of why you wouldn't want to serve on a board. I, I think the thing I went at is why, oh, yeah. was why you would. Yeah, I, I think I think that um, a lot of people are always saying that code contributions are are overvalued and so forth in free software communities. And I think there has been some of that where people treat coders. And I think this is a good example of where there's serious, important work to be done for free software projects that does not involve any coding. I have done. I, I, I'm pretty sure I've done zero coding uh, with related to the board of directors. The best I can think about is maybe I worked on a mercurial commit hook or something related to committing minutes, but that was probably very minor. Generally speaking, board of directors are about meetings and administration and discussion and coming to conclusions and building action items and instructing staff and setting policy for staff and all those sorts of things uh, that are really important for free software orgs. 
um, but that don't involve coding. So yeah. it's a great way to give back, and and you get something for it because it's volunteer work, which is a lot of volunteer but work. It's at least but you get that title, and it's very work. it's heavily recognized right? it's prestigious. And, and it's prestigious, yeah. yeah. So so I think there is value there, and if you're invited to serve on a board, I think you should you should consider it seriously. Um, the, the, I usually turn down uh, invites uh, from orgs that I that I didn't know that much about before they asked me. Right? I mean, if I'm not already involved with the org, I'm not really interested in being on their board. But in both cases where I'm currently on a board of directors, I was involved in the org at some point before I was on the board. And and uh, and so and so when we come back, uh, so let's take a break. That and sounds then, great. And then when we come back, we can pick up about um, pick up about uh, sort of other issues. Maybe talk about the C6 stuff, other types of stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. I've missed recording. I really love the, uh, even though we are not listening to the music during the little breaks, um, I hear it in my head. And it's so fun. Um, I love our theme song. Yeah, you should should have that checked out if you're hearing it. Yeah, so uh, so I well we we put, we we've, I think we fully covered the issue of choose of, of whether or not you should serve on a board. Well, whether yeah, I mean, the, I think those are the threshold questions. But I mean, yeah. then you'll want to ask questions to research the organization before you decide that you in fact like even though you're familiar with the organization, you may not know about the organization's finances, for example. So you should always read the you know the form nine ninety. Right. So if you're asked to serve on a board, that, that sort of leads into the thing I wanted to talk about next, which is if you're asked to serve on a board, what what should you do? Wait, so I, I, actually, let's frame it this way. You've decided you probably want to serve on this board of directors that you've been invited to serve on or you might are, are considering running for. What's the th- first things you want to do? Well, Karen's suggestion there is right. I think downloading all the Form 990s you can get uh, is worthwhile. And go back into history too. Uh, I think that's really important to know. You don't have to go back too far. I don't. But know. At I would least recommend a year it. or two for sure. Well, you should certainly because read the three years that are automatically trend. available, right? Yeah, I mean, you should see if there's any if there are any trends. You'll you'll get a sense of the organization's finances from just reading the recent two years if you really press for time. Yeah. Um, but then asking questions, just follow up yeah. when, while you're thinking about joining. Like for example. Um, you know, what is the financial strategy? Is there is there any reason to expect that the financial situation is changing for the organization in the upcoming time? What are the expectations that the organization has for asking you to serve on the board of directors? Like, do they think that you're um, the super well-connected person in a particular area and they think you're going to get them contacts? Or do they think that you're... Um, that you have lots of time and you're going to like organize their conferences. You know, there are all kinds of crazy things that organizations might think about your involvement there. If you've done one thing for them, they may assume that by having you on the board means that they've got you, you know, to do even more of whatever that thing is that you're doing. And it might not line up with what you want to do. And, and that's particularly important because it's very common that a, someone will be invited onto a board of directors in part, uh, quite frankly, for a fundraising reason. Uh, I mean, that's it's. It, it, I yeah. think we should just say that out, outright. And if you're, for example, working for a company that is involved in open source and free software, the reason they're asking you might be because they think you can help them with their fundraising, and you should have a direct conversation with them about that. About about like, fu- will you expect me to be fundraising at my company? Right. Right. I mean, it's not a problem to ask, and the answer might be that you really could help, and yeah. that could be great, and yeah. you know, and. 
and fantastic. But on the other hand, if you feel uncomfortable asking about that, it might be awkward down the road when there's expectation for you to do so. Yeah, and and I, I can actually use. I, I'm sure that that uh, one of our board members won't mind that I use this example. Uh, Jeremy Allison, who's on Conservancy Sport, he works for Google, but he's not our fundraising contact at Google, and and his role on the board is not is not for him to go. Uh, convince people at Google to give us money, and it's, he's not really part of those conversations. Uh, he's a good so example, forth. though, because he's really clear about sort of saying, "With my Google hat on, yeah. I would think this, and right. with my board member hat, I think that." And, and yes, Jeremy's very careful about delineating his roles, and so then he's a good director for that reason. But my point is, is that is that we didn't invite Jeremy onto the board in his role as a Googler. We invited him in his role because he was uh, a leader in one of our member projects, and we wanted sign of a representative of of somebody who's actually inside. Conservancy as part of a member project and would be able to talk directly to the board about how member projects are perceiving stuff. And we were very clear with Jeremy when we invited him to the board. We were inviting him in basically in his Samba role. We were saying, we want someone who's heavily involved with a member project, who has a long history in free software, who can help us understand how, how the member project side is perceiving us and perceiving the board of directors. And so that was his primary reason to be asked. And we had a very explicit conversation with Jeremy about that. That And he even said at one point when I was originally encouraging him to, to put submit his name for being on the board of directors, that he was like, I, I can't help you raise money from Google. That's not something that I can do. I don't, I'm not connected to that. So while this is a, you know, while this is the, you know, sort of what you should be asking if you, if someone comes to you and asks you if you want to be in a board of directors, it's also the kind of thing you should be asking if you want to put yourself forward to run for a board of directors, uh, run for a board, just to say, um, you know, what am I bringing to the table? How, you know, and it doesn't need to necessarily be fundraising. It can just be that you have are passionate about the project and, um, you know, have views about how the, how the organization should be run going forward. That's enough. But at the same time, it's important to sort of like be clear in your own mind about why you're interested in this position and what you can what you can do in it. And then I would say that one thing that I've really learned from the um, from the GNOME situation of having directors only serve for a year potentially without re-election is that you should put some clear goals for yourself. Um, if there are things that you wanted to accomplish as a board member, it's very very easy to get complacent about it and to sort of like get into the routine of having meetings however quarterly or whenever they are and sort of get bogged down by the ordinary runnings of the organization and not keep yourself you know focused on the reasons why you had become a, a board member and that's one of the reasons why I avoided being a board member was that I you know I sort of felt like as a volunteer I could advocate for the programs that I wanted to um, you know impact and and actually do the volunteer work that I wanted to do on the other hand with GNOME you know I I want to be on the board because I think I can provide continuity for the organization and I care deeply about the organization so I just want to sort of like dabble in all the different parts of GNOME and have a view as to where, you know, where things go forward. And so that's why I think it's relevant and important for me to be on the, the GNOME board. But sort of asking yourself these questions, if it's an election, will make you be a lot more effective for advocating for yourself too, and to get, you know, to get people to vote for you. I, I also think that um, you should keep in mind that being on a board of directors is not enjoyable. It, it, <laughs> it's a lot really of, not. <laughs> a, lot of people, a lot of people feel like being involved in free software is, is actually their leisure time. I know a lot of people do free software projects on their nights and weekends, and it takes a weird type to actually enjoy the kinds of stuff boards of directors have to do. And sometimes the decisions are very tough that you have to make. Uh, boards of directors usually decide the budget, and I'm a fan of saying budgets are moral documents. Budgets decide how you're going to spend the organization's money, and the biggest expense for basically any nonprofit org out there is staff salaries. So one of the big things you end up discussing a lot on the board is how much your staff should be paid and 
who gets to keep their jobs and who doesn't if there's any kind of budget cut. That's not enjoyable conversation. Having deciding who gets fired is not, is not fun. No, it's ever. Fun. Even well, even if the person needs to go, right? Well, it's it's, it's not in, enjoyable. In, in you know in fat times, but fat time they're they're having. Oh, it's been, fun because you can decide who gets hired. You yes, get to that's true. Who gets hired, and you get to decide. You know, you're 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 ultimately everyone's boss, and you know, or or one whatever. You're one on seven, the committee that runs the org. Yeah. Boss, yeah. But at the same time, it you know, you have to expect ups and downs in a financial health of an organization. Yeah, and, and moving and moving uh, budget between budget areas means the staff goes from one area and adds on another, which means their staff going, and that's and that's not always good. Um, and the executive director, if it's an org that has staffing, uh, obviously I'm sort of assuming that in this in this part of the conversation, uh, the executive director really relies on the board um, and is coming to the board a lot with with issues. And and uh, this actually reminds me of something that. Um, I, I can't remember who it was. I think it was Clinton, but it was it was a former president explained why it was so difficult to be president. He says that people always talk about how difficult it is to be president. He said the reason it's difficult is because you make difficult decisions for 14 hours a day because no decision is escalated up unless it's difficult because any decision that's easy, the lower ranking people make. And that's very true in nonprofits. The executive director is usually given the authority to make any basic decision and even some of the more complex ones but when they get really complicated a good executive director is always going to escalate it to the board so everything that gets escalated to the board is usually difficult well in some organizations that's true and in other organizations that's not true because a lot of free software types like to be involved in every particular small decision so for example the gnome board is extremely active in every small decision that the gnome or you know the gnome foundation makes and there are many other organizations in the free software space that are are also that way that's true. So, you know, you sort of have to really investigate, check, read the minutes of the meetings of the boards of directors, read at least a year's worth of minutes. Yeah. Which, if it's an organization like GNOME, that's a lot of minutes. Yep. Yeah. Um, if it's an organization like Conservancy where the board meets less Yeah, but um, I, I sometimes, pro actually, when you edit the minutes, you edit them down, which is good, because when I prep the minutes, when I prep notes, they're usually kind of long. They're just, a, there's no I need for all of the I know, detail. I, I know. I like yeah. detail. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, Karen, quite correctly, Karen is, is uh, currently uh, corporate secretary of, of Conservancy. A lot of times I prep the minutes and then she edits them because the, you know, that's the official corporate secretary's responsibility. Uh, we should talk about officer roles in a minute. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that's... Uh, the, Karen's very good at doing minutes because she edits them down. I'm very bad at it well, because I want to like, incorporate all the detail. There's some sweet spot between us because when I write minutes from scratch, they're like... There was a discussion just the about this big topic, and the board decided to do this. A resolution, yeah. <laughs> just, just yeah, basically, unless there was a resolution passed, it, there's nothing to say, right? But I just sort of feel like to, to get into the details in the minutes only potentially introduces liability, only introduces confusion. Yeah, I mean, I, the reason the reason I like, um, and this is a this is a decision for org by org basis. I like detailed minutes in part because I find directors because they're particularly like in a case with conservancy or FSF where you're only meeting every six months typically. Uh, there's context lost, and I think the minutes can help the board because the, the, if, if an issue is ongoing for multi years, um, it's good for the board to have the previous summary of the conversation because, uh, frankly, people forget. I mean, that's it's people are human, and and if they're only meeting every six months, it, you might have to bring some context in. So having the minutes there from the previous meeting that everybody I, actually at FSF that's very common. What what happens is is everybody kind of shows up a half an hour early to the meeting and sits there and reads like the minutes and the prep material from the executive director. And everything as a way to get into the mindset because they haven't necessarily been thinking about FSF every day um, from in the six months between meetings. So they come
come early and, and, and do that work right there on the spot, which is very useful because then they've got they've recontextualized themselves to the conversation we're about to have. Uh, and for organizations that don't meet that often, the, yeah, I it's bet it's very more good. helpful in organizations that don't meet that often. Yeah, if organizations that are meeting every month, like Gnome does, it's probably less of an issue. Twice um, a month. Twice every uh, other week. I think you're, well, I think you're not anywhere anymore, but well, I think be, the, hopefully the Gnome board, I think it's a bit too much, frankly. I, that's my view, but well, um. I loved it as executive director because it meant like we were a team, you know, like there, and that, that was, there's a lot of fun in that. I mean, less fun when there are problems like with the recent uh, OPW financial stuff, when people, um, you know, when there are negative things that are happening, that was mostly negative press rather than, and, yeah. and, uh, you know, and, uh, uh, various timing issues. Um, cash flow issues, but um, but when there there's negative things going on, there's a lot of pressure on board members to be very active. So you know, and then and then it becomes less fun. But when uh, with GNOME, things have are, you know generally have been very positive, and so um, you know meeting every other week is really really fun. Yeah, and I, I mean I can I can say frankly I don't think anyone on Conservancy's board would be annoyed by this that it was not fun to be on Conservancy's board when we were talking about hiring Karen and it was complex budgetary decisions and figuring out how we could do it and all this sort of stuff. And then there was a negotiation that one of the directors had to have with Karen about hiring her. I, I recused myself from it because I felt that, you know, Karen and I know each other too well and that sort of thing. So that board member had to put in a lot of time to do negotiations with Karen for her hiring, which mm -hmm. the details of which we're not going to tell you, but obviously <laughs> there was a negotiation. And, and that's work that the board has to do. It has to be able to step up to do uh, when, when necessary. Um, and, 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 and we should point out that the board is not the only thing that has official action of the organization, usually the board appoints officers uh, to do things. And a lot of times the officers are also board members. So, you, so there's often a lot of Traditionally, overlap. the officers are elected from the board. Yeah. So it depends. But a lot of organizations like Conservancy now, um, and like SFLC have pointed, um, you know, so I've been officers of organizations even though I haven't been board members. So I turn down board member positions, but I take on an officership. And that way, uh, you know, if you're an officer of an organization but not on the board, you can go to all the board meetings, so you can still be involved in hearing all the conversation, but you don't have to make the tough choices, and you don't, I mean, you're not on the hook in the same way. Yeah, yeah, and so, and so for example, my role at Conservancy, I'm both an officer, I'm president, and I'm also on the board of directors. Whereas with Conservancy, I have for all these years that I wasn't an employee, I've been the corporate secretary of Conservancy, but not on the board of directors. Yeah, and officers do have fiduciary duty as well, we should point out. Yes, the, the they fiduciary do, duty we talked about earlier in the show. different. Yeah. Yeah. So how do they differ? Well, they differ in that, yeah, this sounds like Passover, actually. Why is this night different than all other nights? How does this <laughs> position differ? <laughs> but um, but uh, they, they, they differ in one way, Bradley. Um, I'm sorry. I'm really, I, I lead the Seder in my family to make it a, a holiday about freedom. I'm, just, so it's, I, it's I'm, I'm thinking about the, the joke from last Passover. It actually was a, a full Passover ago on The Daily Show where, where Obama went to a Seder and Asaf Mambi came on to report on it. And he, 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 John Stewart asks him, what, what, what did you think about Obama leading the Seder? And he says, he, he says, he, yeah. And he oh. says, he says, clearly Obama does not know anything about the Jewish faith. He walked in and asked, How, why is this night different than every other night? And it was clear <laughs> to everyone that he didn't know what was going on. <laughs> anyway, so in officership, officers are obligated to carry out their, the duties of the officership position. So it's a little bit different than a position where you're sort of generally engaged to worry about the safety and uh, success of the organization. It's kind of kind of a, a slightly different thing. Um, and I was also treasurer of SFLC when I was not on the board of directors. So you know you can you can do that, and sometimes it's good to do that because it involves more people in the running of the organization. And you know for some things like you know 
secretary or, or even treasurer, having somebody who you know is very, very organized, who is going to share the documents uh, responsibly, um, makes another set of checks and balances on the organization. Having somebody who's also on the board is good because that person's already been endorsed by either the board of directors yeah. or by the membership, so that's convenient as well, and they already have the level of confidentiality that they need to do those things. Yeah, and and, and I should mention, treasurer is probably one of the, the most... Uh, no, I was actually going to say. Job. <laughs> I was going to say responsibility, responsibility ridden. Because, it is. It's true. Uh, if, for example, I know in Massachusetts, our, our treasurer uh, on the FSF board is Jeffrey Canalf, and he actually has to do a lot more work with the executive director, who's John Sullivan at FSF, um, because he, there's certain documents he can sign. He's a secondary signer on the checks and so forth. In conservancy, Peter Brown, uh, who's actually, uh, <laughs> there were often a lot of relations. He's the former executive director of the FSF, although no longer affiliated at all with the FSF, but, but he's uh, conservancy's treasurer as well as being on the board of directors. And there are some documents that he must sign. So, for example, the annual letter from the auditors, uh, Peter must sign uh, in New York State. The Char 500 has to be signed specifically both by the president and the treasurer. So it's not just you were on the board and you had a fiduciary duty, but you actually have to be the one signing under penalty of perjury. I agree that this document is correct. I found it very stressful when I was at SFLC to be the treasurer. Um, like it just is so much responsibility. And then if there's an audit, you have to be sort of, you have to manage that process and make sure on the dotted line at the end of the day that everything is right. And, you know, that's a lot of work. So you know, yeah, and, then and, to, and, and to, for, as an example, what, one of the things I've I've done on the FSF board to take the load off of Jeff for being the treasurer is actually we appointed an audit committee, um, and basically because I have so much knowledge of 990s now just on my own. And because of my work at Conservancy, I've basically been offering that because it's easy for I, I have a really easy time reading a 990 because I've. And read you so probably many. feel like you must get that level involved so anyway, and that's part of the reason why I've turned down audit committees, even though you know when I've not been on the board of directors because it's so much work. You have to really sit down with the financials, but as a as a board member, you were going to do that anyway. Yeah, and so and so Jeff and John Sullivan and I are on the audit committee, and we sit down together and work through the 990, and I'm able to quickly answer stuff and raise issues uh, for both Jeff and John uh, since just basically because of my expertise, um, they, they require a lot more research for them. So it's, it's, it's really rely on each other's situation, but then they have this fiduciary duty to evaluate whether what I'm saying is correct, right? And so, so they can rely on what I'm saying, and it's, it's okay. I mean, not everybody has to do all the work. Like, yeah. You don't have to reproduce yeah. all the work, but then they're using their judgment and their duty of, of all this stuff to say, well, is, you know, do I need to check what Bradley's saying, and is, is he correct, and, and you know, th does that sound fishy, and all that sort of question. They have to ask that about me. And then does it make sense at a high level? Is there yeah. going to be any, you know, anything materially inaccurate and anything like that. But I would say that being a lawyer, there are very few benefits to being a lawyer. <laughs> One of the benefits is that I can just be appointed pro bono counsel for an organization and kind of come in and help and advise. And then there's like a, 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 an attorney-client relationship in place. So, um, so that's some of the ways that I've kind of over, like not been a director or an officer, but still been involved in some of these high level decisions and discussions is because I can be a, a, a lawyer. So take with a grain of salt, my discouragement on being boards, because uh, I get other ways of affiliating and helping out that, um, that if you're not a lawyer, it, it becomes a little yeah. more difficult. But I, I mean, I would, I would certainly like to see more. Uh, individuals be willing to serve on boards of directors uh, for nonprofits and mm -hmm. free software. I, we I, can't I, just keep asking the same circuit of people for starters. It's yeah. not healthy. It's not good. And you know, and and chances are, if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably got an interesting perspective. You know, uh, you're, you've you've listened to some legal issues, free software policy. You're probably in a good position to mm -hmm. think about it. And the last thing I want to cover is is if if 
I mean, I've reached out to people that I know. I mean, that's the most common way is that is that boards of directors reach out to people because it basically it's a recruit, it's a volunteer recruitment question. But if you're a volunteer and you want to be on the board of directors, I, I think the best way is is to start volunteering for the org um, in in more mon- frankly mundane roles. Yeah. The reason I say that is so. For example. Um, when Conservancy looks for new folks to be on our board, it's relatively rare that we go to our member project volunteers. I think Jeremy is probably a, mm-hmm. an exception in that case. That we went to somebody who was a volunteer for a member project and asked them to be on uh, the board of Conservancy. Generally speaking, we're looking at people who are volunteering, doing more sort of internal stuff to Conservancy. Um, and so it, it, to compare it with FSF, for example, if you're a GNU project volunteer, I, I don't think there'll be an invite coming soon <laughs> for you to be on the board, generally speaking, because FSF doesn't go to the GNU volunteers. They go more to people who are involved in other ways uh, because those are the people who more know more about sort of the, the governance of the, mm-hmm. of the, of the org. Um, also, FSF has a, has a moral uh, test as well that you have to pass. A lifelong dedication to software freedom uh, is, the, is, the, uh, is the main criterion. So you have to do that as well. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I think in, in GNOME, I think the electorate tends to... The electorate actually tends to skew in GNOME, I think, towards developers sometimes. Uh, that's actually, something I'm, I find, I'm, I'm not sure that's true. Uh, now. Not anymore. The, the it used to be. The board is very, very diverse. And I would say that this is actually kind of an instructive example if you want to think about... Um, ways that you can get involved. Uh, Tobias Mueller, um, who's on the GNOME board, he actually wound up, um, he was on the membership committee for GNOME, which is kind of thankless. Mm-hmm. But what he did was he read the bylaws and found a lot of mistakes in the, in GNOME's bylaws and got really interested in the workings of the organizations and proposed. So the basically there had been referenda that had been done you know, um, in 2010 that were never incorporated into the um, the actual bylaws. Like the membership voted for the changes and they never got incorporated. And there were other things that had happened too and, and just like little inconsistencies. And he went through and he, he like, he worked with me and as a volunteer and he came up with a whole new, like we, uh, basically a revamped draft that was very much improved. And then he, he came on the board in the middle of that process. And he had demonstrated that he was someone who was, you know, interesting for that kind of process. Now I wouldn't say, you know, finding typos and bylaws is necessarily the way to do it, but reading the organizational documents and thinking about them is a good step in that regard, and that helps you figure out ways that you can um, kind of get involved on that level. I have to admit, though, I was very impressed with a volunteer for Conservancy who came forward with errors found in our Form 990. Loved it. Um, Loved that, that, that's, it. So that's, great. that's pretty impressive, so and, great. That, and that, that's, that, that rings and I guess good director that's material. that everyone should know is that pretty much every document is going to have mistakes in it because they're big and they're detailed and there will always be typos there will always be mistakes so it's just because there is a mistake doesn't mean there's anything to freak out about true but it can be fixed it's there probably is going to be something if you take a look but i I think that's my point is that the people who are willing to look at that level of of mundane aspects of the org in some sense i mean it's not as it's not as exciting as as actually the the org's mission work in some sense right i mean it's not it's not conservancy's mission to follow 990 it's something we know but if you want to help an org like deliver you know like uh fulfill gifts on donations or just help with the overall infrastructure that that's first of all every organization needs this Hmm. and secondly it will it will give you a good insight to see whether what you want to do and when yeah, and so yeah, fun, I um, really have put the dog to sleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I, so yeah, it's in the, the, I suppose fitting, snoring in the background. The dog is snoring. <laughs> it, it's pretty. It's worse than she usually is, and she's closer to the mic than she usually is because she's on my lap. Sorry about that. Um, so uh, the. 
Um, the other thing we want to talk about is, is C6 boards oh, a little yeah. bit, which, which are pretty different than C3 boards. Really different. And I've never served on one. Well, it's hard to serve on one. You have to have a lot of money. Well, or work <laughs> for someone that has a lot of money. True enough. I've never, um, I've never done either. And I, I have sat in on an occasional um, C6 board meeting. Um, and the one, uh, you know, they don't necessarily, don't necessarily seem that different during the meeting than the C3 per se. But I think I think what's most common in C6s is, is everybody is there, almost everybody on the board is, is usually representing a constituency, and that constituency is usually a company or a group of companies. It's much clearer because you know what your purpose is there. Yeah. And you've, your company has most likely purchased the seat that you have there, so you have a strategic yeah. reason to be there, and you have an agenda, mm -hmm. and then you can evaluate all of the items that come up and, you know, and determine whether you know, it's, your company has selected you to be the person to serve on that board. And you also have, you know, a clear idea of why you're there and what you're doing. Yeah, and in some sense, they're they're more frequently political places because it's where these companies basically hammer out what their common business interest is. I mean, I mean, a C six that's functioning well, its board of directors is going to be the place where they figure out what is the common business interest around this particular area. Say, the Linux Foundation board is a bunch of companies or representatives of companies primarily fighting out what what is our common business interest with regard to Linux, and well, they there disagree. Are individuals that also get elected. Well, so so yes, yeah, so, so the, well, there's two individuals who are elected from a, the 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 financial contributing membership of individuals to Linux Foundation, but that's a, it's a, a small minority of the board. Most of the board is, the, the in Linux Foundation's case, the Platinum members who each get a seat automatically, and then all the other membership levers have various different, somewhat complex voting rules that mm -hmm. they can elect so many seats uh, from each tier. Um, so you're representing sort of your tier in those cases, but you're representing this group of companies, and so you have this constituency that that uh, that has this thing. But they, they they basically have to hammer out their business interests, and that's really the goal. I mean, the goal of any board of directors of any nonprofit doesn't change; it's to set the policies and major issues of the board. But on the other hand, it's also um, it's also to set to, to to basically hammer out what the common belief is and in a c3 scenario that's the how is the public good best served by the you know in this mission of our org and in a c6 sense it's how is this industry best served by uh but you know by a common business interest that we can all agree on um but i i think i think from a c6 perspective karen's right that it's i think it's easier to serve i, I i'm guessing i've never served on one and probably wouldn't but it's uh it's you basically you have the agenda of your company. I think probably the toughest part is if you can't win the agenda for your company. Like, is is your are your bosses mad at you? I mean, I I wonder. Probably depends as how it plays out. Yeah, how badly you might be you the did. boss if you're on the board. That's true, but that, <laughs> every, everybody has a boss, right? Well, I mean that's always true, right? That's true. Um, but I mean, usually these decisions are made within the context. You know, how is your individual company's business interest? How is that aligned with the overall business yeah. interest of the org? You know, and that's what it comes down to. So, yeah, I, I, I think mean, that kind of. Yeah, so people have questions about boards of directors uh, and uh, and and so forth. Uh, please write in, and we could do a follow-up show if there if we miss too much stuff. Yeah. Oh, I should give a correction from or an update from last show. Um, I consulted with a litigator about the question of whether. Um, Google could appeal now, wait until it, it, the case is remanded and there's a decision yeah. on the fair use part of the trial. And, um, and this attorney said that she believed that, uh, that Google would surely appeal now. 
oh. that the Supreme Court would probably not take it, but it's hard to predict. Yeah. That's just wasting money But you money could for appeal lawyers. it right now, but it's not a matter yeah, but this, of... But she thinks that they won't start. take it for other reasons, not for the fact that it was remanded for yeah. a fair use analysis. Well, the, the Supreme, this Supreme Court in the last 20 years, 30 years, has been famously not granting cert on more mm-hmm. and more stuff. The Supreme Court works less and less all the time. Um, uh, there's been studies that show how many how many cases versus cert and their percentages go down. I haven't down seen that, that in a while. And, and the there absolute was... numbers go down too. They're, they're doing, there's more cases appealed to the Supreme court and there are fewer cases taken. So mm. it's like the numbers are going, going the wrong direction in both directions. Mm. It's they're lazy. I mean, that's what I think. Well, I don't know. I mean, if you have so many, um, applications, that's more work in and of itself. Well, I mean, what would they take like six months off a year or something? I mean, come on. These are lazy people. They should, well, we pay them a lot of money. They should be working harder. We should have, we should, uh, and if they're too old, the they should retire. Who were, you know, who have had insight in the Supreme Court and ask them for their views on this. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know anybody who has recent insight. Nobody, I, I only know one person who has recent insight. Who was a clerk recently? Who was a clerk, I mean, recent within the last five years. I yeah, think that's yeah. pretty recent. That's recent enough, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if she'd be interested in uh, coming on the so, show. <laughs> uh, so with that, we'll wrap it up. Oh, I guess, I, guess um, I, I didn't tell Karen I was going to do this, but uh, th- we should throw out a question. Um, should So we have, we may end up to it, depending on if I think it's Karen. I think we ought to do the Fosden 2013 talks still, even though they're very old, because they rec- we recorded them and they were never released anywhere. And so I feel like even though it's been a really long time since Fosden 2013, we should do those. Yeah, I'm not sure. But yeah, I mean, we still have the some of the Fosdem 2014 talks. Well, the Fosdem we 2014. We actually recorded. No, I'm talking about 20, uh, uh, 2013. Yeah. We're both talking about. I think you said 2014, but meant 2013. I'm talking well, about 2014. No, I'm saying we also have the 2014. Well, talks, the 2014 is a different which, issue, which, which I think the, the listeners should available. tell us, right? So the video and audio is available on Fosdem's website for, though, not for the first time. Our witty commentary. Well, what I was thinking <laughs> here's what I was going to suggest, and if listeners want to write in and tell us what they think we ought to do, my thought was we should finish up the 2013 talks. Um, just because they're not available anywhere. So the audio is sitting on SD cards and hard drives of mine, but it's not available and we should make it available um, just so it's out there for posterity. The 2014 talks, I think maybe we should just discuss them and not actually air the recordings, but then maybe people who only listen to our podcast might want us to incorporate the recordings Mm. and do people want to skip. And so if people have opinions about that for the 2014 Fosdem talks, they should probably tell us. Yeah. So, uh, so start writing that in. By the time you hear this, maybe we'll have some feedback and know what to do next. Praise and Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of Pod Factory and can be found at podfactory.org. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. This episode of Freeze and Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States license. You can follow Freeze and Freedom, Bradley, and Karen on Identica, and also read Bradley's and Karen's blogs. Links can be found on the Freeze and Freedom website, faith.us. That's faif.us. Let's, says, let's, let's start with the situation of something they honest did inadvertently. Honest oh, well, I mean, if a director is acting in good faith mm-hmm. and reasonably, then... Shh. Shh. Alfie. Shh. 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 Winnie.
We doesn't usually bark. Alfie. Okay. I wonder if we should wait. No, it's fine. 